As you're being seated, I want to ask you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Say it out loud. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Now say, she sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. One is a silly saying. One is a serious scripture. 2 Samuel 7 that we'll look at in a minute is one of, hear me, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It would become nation forming. It would give a nation a sort of a constitution. It would give the people a sense of identity on par, on the level of like the Magna Carta in Great Britain or the Declaration of Independence for the United States. This is one of those serious passages of scripture that's really, really important. It includes messianic prophecy. And what I'm saying to you today, I could really drone on and bore you, okay? But I love you. And I'm not, okay? But I want it, we're just going to skim the surface on something really important to the point where I hope you grasp it. I hope that you'll be formed by this, that you'll be inspired by this, that'll bring you greater understanding. The context of this, of course, is David, a man we're calling the flawed hero. And David, in this stretch of scripture, he's at a different place. Now, you remember, we've looked at David as a shepherd, as a warrior, as a friend. Last week, we found Dave in a cave. We found him in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 24, in a cave and had this opportunity, um, and he didn't take the easy way. He followed God's way. And now we've jumped to 2 Samuel 7, and we don't see David in a cave. We see David in a palace. In a palace. He's in a different place. Let's look at the first two verses of 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So backing up a little bit, David was in a cave. He was on the run. He was fleeing his enemies, particularly this paranoid, angry, jealous king Saul who would not relent or relinquish his throne. And he was after David. A couple of times he sent a spear his way and then he sent men to assail him to capture and kill him. David fled and David was in a cave. And that's where he was. But here's where he is now. He's resting. He's experiencing personal peace. If it's hot out, he's probably out back in a hammock, you know, in the shade, sipping some country time lemonade. And he's thinking shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, because he is experiencing personal peace, economic prosperity in the land, national security. He's at a good place. But if you've been here, you know that's not where David has always been. And we introduce you to David, where scripture introduced us in 1 Samuel 16, of this shepherd boy out in the pasture. And through monotony and obscurity, there's a reality and the reality that God was forming him, even though he didn't know it. In the middle of, in the midst of what seemed to be just a forgotten life, God chose him and picked him to be the next king, but he had to wait to be the king. It'd have been cool if when he was selected, appointed, and crowned that he could have just begun doing king-like things, but he had to wait more time in the pasture. And here we find him in a house, and he says, in a house of cedar. He's proud of his house. It's a palace. It's a really good thing. Now, what do you know about cedar? Cedar, if you Google it, you'll find out that cedar is a common and it's a durable and attractive type of wood to construct homes. You'll find that it's naturally resistant to moisture, to insects like termites and temperature extremes. And you, you'll see cedar 
used in a very um, praiseworthy way in Scripture. Here's one of several examples. If you were to do a word search, it would lead you to a passage like this. Psalm 92, 12. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Now that first part, the palm tree part, wants, it kind of moves you to plan your spring break trip, right? But the cedars of Lebanon were a type of wood, a type of tree that were praised in this time. And if you had a cedar house, okay, now my wife has been watching HGTV and she wants a tiny house, okay, um, because she loves me and just wants to be closer to me. <laughs> but back then, you would want a cedar house. And here's David saying, I like this house, and I'm going to build, hear me, I'm going to build God a house. Because I have the cedar house, and God is living in like a warehouse. And here's one thing we've learned about the king, and I'll remind you again today. This was a king who had good counsel. He had Jonathan. He had Samuel. He had Abigail. He had Nathan. And today, this passage of Scripture, 2 Samuel 7, is where we're introduced to Nathan. We'll learn more about him as, next week as he really plays the role of prophet and confronts David on his sin. But here, we see the king getting counsel. Nathan is introduced. Nathan is like the nation's pastor. He's a prophet and a friend. And Nathan said to the king, to King David, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Okay, you following so far? It's going to get a little thicker, okay? But here is David said, hey, I'm out of the cave. I'm in the palace. I love my house. It's made of cedar. And God lives in a warehouse. I want to build a house for God. So David is a pastor. What do pastors do? When someone says, I want to give a big gift. What? I'm a pastor. You know any pastors? What do pastors do? Instinctively, we say, do it. Give, make your check payable to Fondren Church, right? If you want to big build or give a big gift, then do so. And so Nathan, imperfect and flawed as he is in his own right, just does what a pastor does. Pastors hear so many stories of train wrecks, of so many people who are sharing bad news or have bad ideas. When you hear something good like this, I want to build a house for God, a pastor is going to go, yay, do that. But God speaks to Nathan. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord. That's a great expression. Y'all ever talk like that? Thus saith the Lord. If you're in a small group, say that every time you say something in a small group, okay? Some of you are going to connect tonight or Wednesday night. Every time you say anything, just say, thus saith the Lord, and you'll really win points. Anyway, he's a prophet, you're not. Thus saith the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Why is God living in a tent? Now remember, this is primitive. This is ancient. This is so far from modern. And back then, God met people. This is what the scripture calls uh, the Emmanuel principle. God with us. God dwelling among his people. That's the heart of God to be accessible, to be available, to dwell among his people. And so it's, it's, it's rich and varied and different language, a different history than, than we know of today. But God dwelled with his people and the people were nomadic. Thus, God was in a tent in a tabernacle. If you know the story at all, here's the people of Israel. And the gospel hadn't gone to the world. It's just, it's a tribal thing. And it's this nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And they're, they're getting out of slavery in Egypt. And they're being ushered to the promised land. So they would go and just set up tent and set up tent and set up tent. And the Ark of the Covenant, the tent, the tabernacle represented a sacred and special and holy place where God would dwell. And David is saying, hey, God's not, he's not just in a, 
He's not just in a warehouse. He's in a Winnebago. And I'm going to build him a house. Next up in verse 7. This is God being playful. This is God with perhaps some sarcasm. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Here is God saying, David, Nathan, not a good idea. You're wanting to build something for me and I don't want that. Have you ever received a gift and you didn't want the gift? Have you been there? Were you there a couple of months ago at Christmas? I know a couple, we do, and it's Valentine's Day, the day after tomorrow. Fellas, look at me. Look at me. The day after tomorrow is Valentine's Day, okay? You with me? Did you hear that? just that part of the sermon? You want get, to get this, a lot of you? And we have a friend who is getting his wife. You ready for this? He's getting his wife for Valentine's Day a gym membership. Right? I, I, I literally just saw a woman over here go, oh my gosh. Right? I mean, that, that's a train wreck, right? I mean, there's, we're trying to intercept. We're trying to interfere. He's written a poem. He quoted John Mayer, your body's a wonderland. Take it to the gym. You know, all that kind of stuff. But she's going to hear the take it to the gym part, right? Because I've been married 20 years. I'm learning what women hear, right? You ever received a gift that you don't want? Well, this, that's what this passage is stated simply. Here's God. And David is offering King David, our flawed hero, is offering God a gift but God doesn't want the gift. Now, let's don't pile on, David. Some of you pile on. Let's don't pile on this guy because his intentions are good. He meant well. Our friend, I don't know. But David meant well, and God says no. And let's look what's next, verses 8 through 13. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. In other words, no longer are you nomadic people. No longer are you moving from tent to tent, place to place. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You think you're building me a house. I'm the house builder. I'm the one who builds you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who are we talking about? What's happening? Anybody following this okay Let's see one person over here okay here is this we're beginning to inch into this prophecy of a picture like a sonogram of something that is going to come something you just see in the nuances and subtleties and shades you see a foreshadow you see just a, a glimpse just a little picture and here God is saying, David, I reject your plans. And it's a truth I want to put before you this morning. Some of you need to hear this. God rejected David's plans, but he didn't reject David. Do you see the dichotomy? He rejected David's plan, but it didn't mean that he was rejecting David. 
Not everyone is called to build a temple. The calling to the person next to you or the calling of the person whose inspiring biography you read this week, that calling doesn't necessitate your calling. And God is saying to David, hey, you know what, David, you're a warrior. You're a fighter. You've been serving in the trenches. You've been scooping sheep's poop in the pasture. And you are these things. And I have formed you. I've taken you from the pasture. And I've made you a prince. And that's who you are. You're not a builder. But there's someone coming after you who's a builder. Let's go a little bit further and we'll get into the prophecy. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Wait, is he talking about Jesus? Because Jesus didn't sin. I'm confused. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here, this biblical prophecy, again, we could go deep and complex here, but let me put it as simply as I know how. When there is a biblical prophecy, there's usually an immediate meaning and an ultimate meaning, okay? Note takers, you want to get that one down. There's an, there, when it comes to biblical prophecy, there's an immediate meaning, a duality, or an immediate meaning and an ultimate meaning. And the, the immediate meaning is it's pointing to King Solomon. David's going to have a son. The son is going to be Solomon. The son is going to be the next king. And God contrasts his plans for Solomon with his plans for Saul. Now, Saul ended up not being a good king. And it says God withdrew from him. In fact, there was an evil spirit on Saul. But God worked with Solomon differently. And Solomon, he, he built a grand temple that pointed to the throne of David that would be established for some time and it was a great and mighty temple but it wasn't the eternal temple. It's space and time bound and this King Solomon, he would do bad. God chose to deal with him differently. You probably have a host of questions about the fairness of God. We never do well with the fairness of God. I think we do well with the justice of God. But God meets people in their time, on his terms, in his way. And he treated these two kings differently. He said for Solomon, though, David, you're not building the temple. Solomon, your son, is going to build this temple. But he wasn't just pointing to Solomon because we know Solomon turned bad. We know Solomon made a lot of bad decisions. And we know that his sons turned. And they were uh, driven out. And they were uh, placed into captivity. So we're not just pointing to Solomon the one with iniquity, but we're pointing through Solomon to another king, to a future and coming king, to a king who would be born greater than Solomon and all, to a better king, to one who would be born in the city of David in the place known as Bethlehem. It's pointing to Jesus. The next few verses here, uh, back to 2 Samuel 7. Then King David went. I love this. We're going to camp here for a moment. Then King David went and he sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? His dream had died. God had redirected him. And just because you experience rejection doesn't mean there isn't redirection. 
Sometimes rejection can be for your protection. God had different plans. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house, servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. David realizes this is getting bigger. O Lord God, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Not to make your servant great, but to make your servant know who is great. God, I'm not going to build you a house. That's not, what, that's not the gift you want from me now at this time. You have someone else. It's my son. I need to delight in my son and the different plans that you have for him. But I accept this. And this phrase, notice it, it's so beautiful. In this narrative we see, David went and he sat before the Lord. Do you know the, the 46th Psalm says, you know this, it says, be still and know that I am God. And do you know what's true about us? I'm just kind of lumping us all in together in 2017. You know what's true about us? We stink at being still. I had to be still and know that I am God moment this weekend. Take this phrase. Be still and know that I am God. And let's take away a word or phrase at a time. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. This is in the heart of our humanity. I can't quote the sources, but some smart Harvard folks said that there's some people, a percentage of people who would prefer electric shock therapy than to be still with their own thoughts. I believe it. Be still and know that I'm God. David went... And he sat before the Lord. This is a king. This is a king with childlike humility. This week in a really bad moment, an unguarded moment, I was alone at home and I watched Judge Judy. And I'm telling you, when you watch, by the way, anyone want to guess how much money Judge Judy made last year? Ready? $40 million. That's a, that's a strong woman right there. When you're before Judge Judy, you are before Judge Judy. You know what I'm saying? Everybody that's there, they, they realize they are before Judge Judy. And there's this hierarchy. There's this understanding of who's large and who's in charge, of who's going to steer the discussion, who's going to find the facts, who's going to be the arbiter of justice, who's going to make the final decision, right? There's Judge Judy. And here's this king, a powerful man. And though he's been through a lot, this powerful man living in the palace has this dream. And with good and noble intentions, he says, God, you have given to me and I'm going to give back to you. I'm going to build you a house. Well, wait, wait, wait. You don't want a house. And here David, having to decipher between having a dream rejected but not being personally rejected. Of realizing, by the way, isn't that a tough place to be? Has anybody been there where you have a dream that God's going to use you to do this and then it occurs to you that that door is closed and he's going to use somebody else. And then you're there and what you're called to do, you're called to rejoice with the other. God, I, I, want, I wanted to be the house builder. I, I, want, I had this plan, this dream is laid out. I had the architect, I had the 3D images, right? I had this plan, I was going to do it. 
But now the door closed. Somebody else is going to do it. And that's where David is. But it leads the king to childlike humility. That kingly judge Judy spirit in him is removed. And he went before the Lord and he sat. There's a prophet named Isaiah. He's a major prophet. And in chapter 51, there's this beautiful expression. It says, look to the rock from which you were cut. Look to the the quarry from which you were hewn. What is that? That's a flowery, poetic, prophetic way to say, remember where you came from. Look back. Because here's the thing. Everybody comes from somewhere. And everybody's been through some things. And some of us are overcomers. So you look to the rock. You were cut out of something. You look to the rock from which you were cut. Some of the men just kind of sat up. You know, yeah, I look to the rock from which I'm cut. Look, where have you come from? What have you been through? Look to the quarry from which you were hewn. Because people who do well know where they've come from. And they know what God has brought them through. And for David, it was sheep. To the palace, the pasture to the palace. And I'm sure as David went before the Lord, this was on his mind of just gratitude to God. I thought it was going to be this house, but you have something else for me, don't you, God? Can I tell you, if a dream has died and it's something that's noble and good and spiritual, God is redirecting. He's redirecting. And take that, not as final rejection, but let him open that door for you. This flawed hero realizes God has something different for him. Now, who's the house builder? Who really is the builder? I think we need to elevate our thoughts and realize that there's something in us. There's something in us that's the Bible calls it vain ambition. And it spawns bitter jealousy and anger and rage and malice and a host of other things that make us hard to live with. There's... A statement, a passage in Jeremiah that gives us this idea long before HGTV gave us this spectacle that created this thirst for nice houses. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with what? With cedar and decorates it in red. There is just something about us that wants to build something. But are we building it for God or are we building it for ourselves? Arguably, the most famous secular figure in human history is a man named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was an innovator. He was a conqueror. He became a military genius in his early to mid-20s. He was a king at 20. He conquered the Persian and Egyptian empires. His reign extended from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the borders of India. In his early 30s, before his early death caused by malaria at the age of 32 or 33, he was exploring another continent that no one dreamt of. And Alexander the Great, those closest to him said that He treated people with fairness and honesty if they were insiders who exhibited courage and skill. But to everybody else and to those who opposed him, he was ruthless. He was known to have a violent temper and overwhelmed with ambition. To the point that if you see, look at his Wikipedia page, 
You will see they, did, they had malaria back then, but they didn't have Wikipedia. Aren't you glad you live where you, when you live now? But if you look at his Wikipedia page, it says that in the end, Alexander the Great was blinded by ambition. It was one conquest after another conquest. Conquest for the sake of conquest. When you look at a leader, when you study a life, you have to be drawn to the ultimate question. What was he, what was she made of? What were they going after? We see a host of bad leaders and bad kings. History is strewn with it outside of the Bible and inside of the Bible. And here this man, David, is being redirected. He's being redirected to the one who is the real builder. And I'm making our pro presenter do some calisthenics this morning, but we can go back to Jesus because there's this messianic prophecy about who the real builder is. And when Jesus went to his first wedding in John chapter 2, he confronted the religious crowd. Most of you know that he turned water into wine. That's like your favorite story in the Bible, some of you. And here Jesus, he says this amongst the religious leaders in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, this Solomon's temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied like you and I would reply, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And Jesus is moving, hear me, Jesus is moving humanity forward. He's establishing a new, not just a new reign, but a new covenant, a new relationship with God. He is saying there's this new entirely religious system. And it's all about the heart. He gave his disciples the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He gave them the great commission. Go and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. Teaching and baptizing them. He gives the great commandment, the great commission. And when the church was gathered, he was about to show them that this is no longer a nation. It's no longer tribal. It's for the world. It's for every ethnic group in the world at the time and in the future world. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to give you a gift. And even though you're sad, I'm going away. John 14, you see this, at, you hear it at funerals. I'm going to go away and in, I'm, my father's building a house. And in that house, there are many rooms and there's one prepared for you. But Jesus says, don't worry so much about your houses because there's a whole different house. There's a new temple and it's my body. And check this out. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit and he's going to dwell in you. And later, Paul would tell the church at Corinth this about the way of Jesus. He would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your bodies are what? Houses of God. Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Whole new way. There's no longer this false dichotomy between sacred and secular. There's no longer necessarily special places where only God is, but God is in you. God lives amongst his people and he's in you and you are a temple. In fact, he said the church should still gather in temple-like structures, but there should be leaders, men and women who lead and pastor and teach and administrate and exercise their gifts. And my job description, I may not do a good job and some of you are quick to point it out, but my job is clear in scripture. Pastors are to teach so that you would be equipped to do the work of service. It's not your job to come and throw a 
little bit of money in the plate while I do the work or our staff of professionals do the work. It's our job to teach and instruct and inspire so that you would be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And it says this in Ephesians 4, so that we would be built up in love. There's a new building and this is a beautiful building. We're restoring this building. This place that you're in was built in 1948. We're restoring it. We're working to do more. And it's a beautiful building and I think a very, very special place. Of course I'm going to say that. But more important to that is to God is a people formed. That we would be the houses of God, the temples of the Holy Spirit as we go forth from this place. What does God want to build? God has moved in history to move us away from sacred places to be people who are sanctified, built up in love. So I want to close with seven truths. Seven truths that are prompted by this story of David wanting to give God a gift that God doesn't want for him. A couple of them you've heard in the sermon, but sometimes God will reject your plans. This doesn't mean he's rejecting you. Secondly, the same God who wants to give you success will at times ordain failure. Do you believe that? Do you believe the first part? Some of you are like, yeah, success, here we go. I thought he was kind of a Joel Osteen prosperity preacher. I knew it, I knew it. I've been visiting for a few weeks and I was just waiting for him to go there. Do you know God wants you to be, God wants to grant success. He wants to give you prosperity. Joshua 1, Psalm 1. Psalm 37, 4. God wants us to delight in him and he'll give us the desires of our heart. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 7, ask, seek, knock. When you ask, it'll be given. When you seek, you'll find. When you knock, the door will be open. He wants to give you prosperity. The scripture says that he wants to bless your life. He really does. But this same God, and this is the grand mystery of which we all live. But in, within that mystery, the same God that wants to grant you success and prosperity will ordain failure in your life. He will. Next, it's important that we sit down and take a long look at our short lives. I told you, I told you what inspired me. David went and David sat before the Lord. No one holds too high of an office. None of you make too much money. None of you are too good looking, too fabulous, too famous, too important to go and sit before the Lord. And it's hard to sit. Do you know at church? Do you know at church, I watch you. Now, a lot of you are watching me, but I watch you. Do you know that? Like, I'm watching you watch me, and I'm watching some of you not watch me. And that's never about me, but I do, I do look at people's posture. And you know, being a pastor, it's not the easiest job in the world. When, you, know, you know when some people are mad at the pastor? You think, oh, they're mad they don't come to church. Well, that's an option. Some people, though, when they're mad, they come to church, and they won't look at you. And they'll show you they're mad at you, right? It's that passive-aggressive type, right? It's that posture of, I'm not going to sit before this guy. I'm mad at him. He didn't call me like he used to, or he decided this about that. I'm just I'm coming to church. I'm a full bomb. I'm not, not going to look at him. There's a way that you sit, and it communicates interest or disinterest. It communicates involvement or non-involvement. It says, I care, or I'm preoccupied, and I don't really care. And this affects marriages and relationships, dinner time, and bedroom, and church pews, and a whole lot of things. But to sit before the Lord, it's what you need and it's what you crave. And for us to be a people formed like Jesus, we're going to have to be David. And we're going to have to go and sit 
before the Lord. Next, what are you trying to build? And who's it for? Next, does God care more about monuments or movements? If it's about building something great for yourself, that's a monument. And what happens to monuments? Pigeons land on monuments. And what do pigeons do on monuments? Just turn to the person next to you. They poop on monuments. Just say it, they poop. When you want to build something great for yourself, King Saul, Solomon, Alexander the Great, King Tut, Google King Tut and learn some about King Tut. If you grew up in the 70s, you'll remember Steve Martin's song about King Tut. You with me? That's a great one. All, all children should watch that tonight. Does God care about monuments or movements? I'm telling you, church, it's the latter. In fact, when Christianity, if you study the history of Christianity, when Christianity goes and it sets up and it forms and it gets structure and power, and it's in any way theocratic or monarchy-like, it loses its purity and its essence. And I've noticed God is moving. God is moving around the world. You know where God is really, now this is macro, this is broad brush stuff here, but where God is really working is in different places of the world, places that uh, it's just different. And God is a movement maker. I pray that our church is not a monument. I, our staff and our elders hear this a lot, but I want them to make sure I don't act like a king. There's nothing kingly about me. There's, there's a list, a picture of pastors right down the hall, 50 yards from where you sit, of the pastors that have pastored at Woodland Hills through the years, and they're all dead and gone. And that'll be me one day. Because my life is short and I'll be dead and gone. And I can't be about building a monument to myself. I need to build a movement. I'm not a king. I've got a lot of ideas. A few of them are good ideas. Only one or two of them need to be applied. And that's why we have a plurality of leaders. Trust me, I'm not a king. You want me to give you an example? If I was king at Fondren Church, the room would be 10 to 15 degrees cooler right now. <laughs> All right? But I fight and 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 I call and I text and I fight and I'm just fighting against a lot of people and it's just hot and I'm not a king. All right? But unless you want to make Fondren Church great again and vote for me to be the one sole decision maker, then we'll have a cool sanctuary for church. But I'm not a king. Next up, we only got a couple of more. The world is not supposed to look at you and say, wow, what great things they have done for God. They are to look at you and say, what great things God has done for them. And I wonder if the orientation of your life, especially if you're in ministry, I wonder if the orientation of your life, if you serve here in staff, elder, deacon, group leader, is the orientation of your life that way. Is it the great things you're doing for God? That's pride and arrogance, and God despises that. He, he, he's opposed to the proud. How clear is James 5? I'm opposed to the proud, but I give grace to the humble. What great things God has done for them. Our new children's pastor, Ben, texts our staff. We let him go to Dallas to a conference. He went. We didn't go. But he texts us at this verse, Psalm 107 and verse 2. We're going to look at it quickly in three different versions back to back. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others he has redeemed you from your enemies. 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble. Do we have stories? We have prayed and we have decided that we don't want to be a church about statistics. We want to be a church about stories. We want people to look at the rock from which they're cut, from the quarry from which they are hewn, and to say, God has brought me here from there. Look at what he has done. It's not what you have done. It's what God has done for you. He's the the builder and he's the architect. And lastly, this is it. God is the giver. and We are the recipient responder. It's called grace. And it is so hard for autonomous, independent, rugged-minded people to grasp. The best thing that you and I could do is to learn to respond to God as the giver. And we are the recipients. We are the ones he's given to. It's not what you're doing for him. It's not that. It's what he has done for you. And then your life simply tells that story. That's why we ought to be able to share our failures more. That's why we ought to be more real with each other. That's why we need less pretense and less formality and less stuffiness. Now, look, I love tradition. I went to a funeral for some dear brothers and sisters in our church to Yazoo City, to a church much more traditional. There were incense and it was just, it was beautiful. And it, it paid tribute to a life. And it reminded me that our faith is a very historic one. I'm for tradition, but I'm not for traditionalism. I'm not for what holds us back. And religion says, build houses for God. But Jesus says, you're a house, and you're a house, and you're a house, and you're a house. And together, we come to a house. But you know, here, we don't ask you to get involved in a ton of religious activities. We're actually getting some criticism from We got some people going, I want more programming. I want more programming. I'm going to that other church because I want more programming. I gathered our staff and I circled up and said, I don't want to lose any good people because we don't have enough programming. But I mean, are we on target? We, we want you to come once a week to church. And then we want you to go and be the church. And we don't want to take a lot of you because you have families and workplaces and neighborhoods. So we ask you, to, we talk about gospel enjoyment, intentional community, and prayerful mission. But to, to live that way, you can't be at a church building. I love God's house. I make a living off God's house. But it's so limited. And God wants to make us sacred. And it's a sacred word he's doing.